Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. After a two-year hiatus, Eric Burleson is set to return to the Missouri General Assembly as a member of the Missouri Senate. And the Greene County Republican is hoping to make an impact with his legislative agenda, which includes implementing right to work. Burleson joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about the 2019 session. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manish. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position, and why are you qualified to run? I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors, and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Lufius Alfa Romeo, offering test drives of the Alfa Romeo Giulia, the 2018 Motor Trend Car of the Year at Lufius Alfa Romeo in Fairview Heights. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Merzenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is on assignment today, so I'm flying solo. Our guest who is being stationed right now at KSMU Studios in Springfield. This is Eric Burleson. Senator-elect for the 20th Senatorial District. Did I get that number correct? That's right, yes. And that incorporates parts of Greene and all of Christian County, uh, if I'm yes. not mistaken. Just remind our listeners kind of your, your, your personal political history and kind of some of the, the highlights of Eric Burleson in the Missouri House, because there were many. You were, you were what I would classify as a pretty impactful representative there. So just remind our listeners who you are. Well, I'm, I'm a computer programmer by trade. I grew up in, in this area in southwest Missouri and um, come from a family that has been involved in the uh, grocery business and farming and insurance and um, just uh, uh, grew up, but also as a computer nerd. That's, I grew up in the 80s whenever we would program on, on f- true floppy disks and sometimes even cassette tape. And... Uh, when I was going through college, I would often get um, side jobs building early websites, you know, back in the day when the text would scroll across the screen. And um, and so eventually I kind of uh, went into the private sector working in healthcare industry for Cox Hospital as a programmer, and then eventually for Cerner, which is a large hospital software company out of Kansas City. And uh, I would bore you to tears if I explained to you um, exactly what I do in that capacity. But I uh, uh, went to Missouri State, have a master's in business administration. And the things that I love to do, my hobbies are finance. I really love studying the stock market. I do like to day trade. That's about the closest thing to gambling that I'll do is in the stock market. And then I love to hunt and fish. And, um, and so I have a do- uh, two daughters. They are now 11 and 9, and they are the joy of my life. And then also my wife, Angie, she is um, in the chocolate um, and candy industry. She is the executive director of a 
association called Retail Confectioners International, and they are the Candy Makers and Chocolate Makers Association of the of North America. So it's a pretty. She has a really great job, I have to say. I was just gonna say I am. I don't have many vices. Like I, I I'm pretty moderate in my drinking. I stopped drinking soda four years ago. But one thing that I cannot stop do stop doing is eating chocolate and sugar. Apparently, it's a very addictive product because it's just so delicious. So well, I'll have to I'll have to bring you some. I don't know if I'm allowed to with the new Clean Missouri, but I would I'd be happy to if it's acceptable to bring you. Uh, bring you some chocolates. Well, I don't think the new constitutional amendment bars lawmakers from giving uh, reporters gifts or, or bribes, but uh, right. be that as it may, let's 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 keep with the spirit of that law. So, okay, you, you're not the first legislator who termed out after after eight years in the House and then had to wait two years before running uh, for the Senate. Before we get to your latest run, what exactly did you do in this two year interim? I, I've heard people before. You know, they they get jobs and work during that time. Some people who are retired, like, spend more time with their grandkids. What were you doing during this kind of Eric Burleson uh, sabbatical, so to speak? For me, I work, as I said, I work in the private sector. So it, for me, it was just gearing up the, the number of hours that I work um, in, in my profession. So I went from working for, you know, part of the year, uh, part-time, because even during session, I'm able to work remotely some uh, some hours, and then obviously work on Mondays and Fridays quite a bit, and be able to usually get in a part-time schedule during session. And then dur- then when we're not in session, I'm able to work full-time. And I like that. I like having one foot, if you will, like in the cubicle environment at work, where I have to answer to people and have and have responsibilities and have and understand what what everyone else is going through and then have another foot in the in the public sector environment in the in um, in service I, I enjoy that aspect so during the last two years I really just um, ramped up uh, my work uh, load and then also got involved in local clubs and groups and did a lot of the you know the community stuff and 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 um, went to a lot more soccer games with my kids and you know, got to got to relax a little bit. I also was p- campaigning for the last couple of years as well. So I don't want to get too inside baseball, although a lot of this show is kind of insular political uh, gobbledygook. But there was kind of conjecture for a while that you and Senator-elect Lincoln Huff were going to be running in the same district. What could have been an acrimonious and very expensive primary, which um, that didn't come to pass, obviously. I, I believe that you moved a little bit in, in Green County so that you would live in the 20th district. Neither one of you had primaries. The 20th district is a super Republican district. So the fact that you avoided a primary in many respects was tantamount to election. First of all, I want to make sure that I'm getting some of that background correct. And and I guess wh- how did you kind of end up in in your particular situation where you're you're in the 20th district as opposed to the 30th. For for me and for my family, we our kids are in the 20th. We go to school in the 20th, and so we were actually driving our kids to to um, what is a what is a select or an elect school in um, it's still in Springfield Public Schools, but it's in the 20th district. So we were uh, for us 
also we were we had been for eight years waiting to move uh, uh, part of the reason was because we, we had bought during that downturn and turn in the economy and so waiting for that time as well as waiting for the to be out of the uh, the the state representative district so the moment that I was no longer in that district we then moved and got directly literally next to the school where my kids attend elementary and so that was we just you know for me I never wanted to decide where I was going to live based on what I was going to run for it, it for me it's what is the best place for my family and so that's that was the decision for us and then a few couple years later um, Lincoln Huff now senator-elect Huff had decided that he also wanted to run in that 20th district. Um, for him, it would have been moving out as well, but, <clears throat> um, and there was really not a discussion between he and I as far as, uh, and in fact, he did announce that he was running against me. Um, we, we, whenever that happened, we did as much fundraising as possible and as many grassroots campaign events as possible and I think that, I don't know exactly what their thought process was. I think it might have been to try to scare us out or to try to um, um, show strength. But I think that at the end of the day, um, what ended up happening is I think what was best because my I think when you look at my voting record, it very well lines up with the Senate district that I'm representing, which is very conservative, as you said, very red. and. And I think uh, Senator-elect Huff will represent the city of Springfield very well based on his previous voting record. Let's get dive right into uh, the 2019 legislative session. Um, before we go down the list of bills that you've sponsored, and many of them have made quite a bit of news, what are you, what's your general expectations for 2019, especially when there'll be a governor who's never been there before during a legislative session, and also during this feel, this kind of era of good feeling between the legislature and, and Governor Mike Parson. For me, I'm coming into an, in a situation that's that's different for me. I, I served all of my time under under Governor Nixon, so I'm excited about serving in the Senate with a Republican governor. I know that uh, everything always starts very um, acrimonious, and everybody's happy and. And everyone has all kinds of expectations, and there's a lot of joy. And usually by May, everyone wants to strangle each other. And that will, I do, if I if I were a betting man, I would bet that as much as as we want to try to keep um, um, everything in harmony, I would expect that probably, if I was to predict, I think that by this time in May, there will be a few feuds and there may be some hurt feelings. But overall, I think that there's we're likely to get quite a bit done. That was going to be my next question. Like, you were part of the House, which I don't want to say everybody in the, the Republican caucus had the same ideology or voting record. But, I mean, the way the House kind of runs is by majority rule and getting 82 votes and kind of having a, a general plan and consensus among, among mainly Republicans. In the Senate, it's a lot different. The Republican caucus often is factionalized between leadership and, I guess, more conservative firebrands. I, I could actually see that same dynamic playing out this time around. Um, there are a number of 
incoming senators who I could kind of see not necessarily going along with the flow, so to speak. Uh, would you? Where do you think you're going to fall into that continuum, or is it really going to depend on the issue? I would say it's going to depend on the issue. My my general attitude about legislation is that I'm going to vote my conscience. Um, some people, and I have kind of a, a different philosophy about that than others, but and to elaborate is that I tell people that my role is to be true to what I believe and what I know is right. And my job as a legislator is to educate the vote, my district and my constituents on why I believe what I believe. And that's while I'm taking input and guidance, but at the end of the day, it's my job to make a decision, an educated decision, and and, and one that I can live with. And I think that given that, that uh, if, if you have a, uh, a longer view of things, that there's going to be a time in my life where I'm not going to be an, an, an elected office. I want to be able to look back on the time that I was here and never regret a vote or, or, or maybe not doing enough. And so that's my attitude about how I conduct myself. Um, but at the end of the day, my job is to educate voters what my views are and to stick to that. And if, if voters want that, that's great. Um, but, uh, it, but if the will of the vote of the people change, then, then that's not my attitude is that I'm not going to change with the wind or with the will of the vote. I, I can't be that way. I will lose myself. I'll lose who I am. Uh, and so for me, that's, my attitude is is to stick to those principles. So when b- bills come up, I'm going to vote my conscience. But I truly believe that if a bill comes up that I'm opposed to, and I think has will create unique harm to my district, then I think that that is the role of a senator at that time to leverage the 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 tool of the filibuster. So let's talk about the bill that everybody in Missouri politics is talking about. It's Senate Bill 63 which is pretty much identical to every other right-to-work bill that you've ever sponsored or right-to-work proponents have ever sponsored. For listeners who have not been listening to this show for the last five or six years, right-to-work is a policy that bars unions and employers from requiring workers to pay dues. It was passed by the legislature in 2017, but overturned in August in a referendum pretty soundly. So I think that the... uh, general reaction to this, especially among right-to-work opponents, is why is Eric Burleson putting forth this bill after Proposition A went down in defeat so dramatically? So I'll let you answer that question in response to some of that criticism. So to me, and you know, this is an issue that I've been carrying almost my entire time in the, in the legislature that I was elected. And for me, this issue is a more, it's, I, I believe this issue is the right issue, not because it's popular, but because it's the right issue. It's morally the right thing to do. And, uh, and be, to me, because of that, issues that you hold dear in that regard should not be, um, uh, sh- should not change based on the, the vote of a people. And uh, to further elaborate, I think, you know, some people think that this is a democracy and this is not i mean democracy is not freedom we as a as a nation we wanted to seek 
a nation that gave people as much freedom and liberty as possible. And um, democracy is not that. Democracy, as Benjamin Franklin famously said, is two wolves and a sheep voting for what's for lunch. And, and so to me, the right of a person to choose which group that they wish to join or not join is a right. And I, when I carried this issue all those many years, I heard horrible stories from individuals who were certainly in the minority of the union or the place at which they were employed, but, but their rights were trampled on. And at the end of the day, uh, for me, this is a, um, this is a moral issue. And that's why I don't hold, you know, I'm not worried about what the, what the majority vote is. Um, I still would hold these views. Now I would, I would also say, I don't think that if you truly polled this issue in a, in the right way, I don't think the poll would come out uh, the way it did. I think that the ballot language was confusing. We had, we, you know, for those that were in favor of this issue, we had other polls with different language that showed that, that it would win with different polling language. But this polling language polled extremely bad. And it was so bad that those that were in favor of the issue knew that it was folly or foolish to invest any money towards that campaign effort, which is why you saw so little effort on the on the yes side, because we couldn't convince anyone. There was no campaign manager or anyone that thought there would be enough money to actually win it with the ballot language that there was. Yeah, and I mean, so, and just to follow up on that, the pro-Prop A side was frankly very anemic, and it had really no comparison to the millions of dollars that was going to defeat Proposition A. But again, to play devil's advocate, just because somebody runs a, a weak campaign doesn't necessarily, for many people, necessitate a do-over. I mean, by that logic... You, you could make an argument that there should be a do-over for the state auditor's campaign and the Republicans should get another chance with a, yeah. a stronger candidate, no, basically. So how would you respond no, that, to that? Yeah, no, that and that's not the, my main premise. My main premise is that this is a moral issue and one doesn't simply drop it be, simply because because of a majority vote. Uh, and not to compare compare the issues, but uh, as though they're equally in, in, in moral standing, but... I don't change my position on my stance on pro-life issues based on the vote or the will of the people. And, and you could, one could continue to go on, you know, you pick your moral position. Um, you're not going to change your, your views on a moral issue based on, based on the vote of a people. If you think something is morally abhorrent, you're going to continue to fight for a change. So I'm going to play a clip now from incoming Senate president pro tem, uh, Dave Schatz. This is an exchange that he and I had during a candidate forum earlier this year, and I asked him point blank whether right to work would be a priority in the Senate in 2019. Senator Schatz, I think you voted for right to work. My question is, would you bring this issue up again? Uh, I, I, do, I think the issue is over. I think the voters have voted. I think the issue is a done deal. I don't think there's any shape, form, or fashion where the legislature would attempt to bring this up. Uh, obviously, the 
uh, obviously that, again, I think that uh, with, with, with the results that we've seen from that, uh, there was a very effective campaign and the voters spoke and obviously that's, I believe that's the end of it. I, I obviously have a little bit more insight into state legislative politics than the layman, and I understand the Senate president pro tem is not an all-powerful, godlike legislator like that Speaker of the House in many respects is. But doesn't, <laughs> but doesn't that, doesn't those, com- don't those comments kind of m- bode pretty poorly that your bill is going to get any traction in the foreseeable future? I can't say what, I can't give the opinion of other lawmakers. I, what I can say is that uh, if you look back at my record, uh, when I started filing this, uh, I was, I, I faced very certain difficulties and from people that, um, that did not want this issue to be brought to the forefront. And so for me, this isn't about whether or not I'm, it makes me popular with my colleagues and my peers up in Jefferson City or popular um, with the state as a whole. Now, I will say people in my neck of the woods uh, do support this issue a lot more so than than they do, I think, up in St. Louis. Yeah, I, I looked at the I looked at the margins. I think it passed probably passed in Christian County and I think it failed in Greene County. But I don't know the breakdown. It could have been more popular in your part of the Senate district than Lincoln Huff's Senate district. But continue. Yeah, I think it, it probably I'd have to look at the breakdown, too. I would if I, I would bet it, it probably did do a lot better in the rural green. But it, anyway, it's a lot different that the, the view here is a lot different than it is uh, in other parts of the state. But that at the end of the day, um, I start when I started d- discussing this issue almost 10 years, you know, eight, 10 years ago, this was not a popular issue to, to discuss. And change is often difficult. But um, I find that um, the facts on this issue don't lie and, a, and, the, and the economic reality is only getting worse. There is going to probably, I mean, this may end up happening at some point. When you just look at the trend, the job numbers in this state are continuing to go down, and the union um, employment is continuing to go down. And at some point, I, th- I think that the, I really think that the status quo is harming unions. I think this this makeup is harming themselves, um, but it's and it's unfortunate. But I think that's the fact. So let's talk about some of the other bills that you uh, sponsored, because while the right to work one is getting a lot of attention, there are other ones that I think are also of note. Let's talk about SJR 11 first, which a number of colleagues of yours have produced in some similar form or fashion. Yeah, it does two things. One, it increases the threshold of the vote. uh, And then two, it requires that the signatures be collected from all congressional districts in the state. You know, if you look at the current scenario, these last initiative petitions, they didn't even come, many of them didn't even come to my neck of the woods to collect signatures. And they often only go to the inner city, to the very high density population areas to collect signatures because it's more cost effective. And it's, well, I think what the outcome of that is that we're likely to get a policy that reflects those or ballot issues that reflect the the political views of people that live in a high density area and you're less likely to convince people in rural Missouri to uh, to sign on to some of these issues that we have seen on the ballot and so to me it doesn't you know you're gonna change the Constitution you need to get the, the whole state 
in agreeance, in agreement. And and so, I I my proposal will will require the every every congressional district to submit signatures, and then it will also elevate the threshold of the vote. To me, you look at our, our constitution; it's it's like a phone book. It is very thick. It's um, it, to me, it's too big. Uh, it's and it's too easy to get things in, entered into the Constitution. So, um, I think that it should be much more like the the federal level, where it require the federal level requires two thirds votes of the states. But I think that it would be appropriate to raise the threshold to two thirds vote of the population. So this cycle, the Clean Missouri was passed, which overhauls redistricting by a pretty substantial amount, state legislative redistricting. Medical marijuana was put into the Constitution as well. So if your initiative ends up getting approved by voters, and let's just say that there are some really serious issues that stem from those initiatives, isn't it going to be much harder to change them if you need a two-third majority as opposed to a simple majority? Well, that you could say that about any of the things that are in the Constitution, but in general, we, we, we tend to um, see... A negative outcome in the changes that we're making to the Constitution. Um, I don't pretend that we're going to be able to uh, fix clean Missouri on the ballot. Um, I mean, that's I, your your question could be applied to anything that we would attempt to do conservatively to change the Constitution. But t- typically, conservatives are not trying to put ballot issues on to add things to the Constitution. One of the things that I think may not be getting as much attention but probably has a pretty substantial impact is your changes to the Missouri Merchandising Practices Act. I hope I'm getting that name correct. Right. I, I, right. I, I, I sometimes bungle that. Explain what that is and what exactly you would do to change that because I know that there has been efforts in the past couple of years to do that. They've often run into very sizable amounts of opposition um, what do you want to do, and why do you think it needs to be done? So the, the current one is really broad. The When you look at, a, a, I do think there's a problem in Missouri. I think that when you when you consider the fact that Missourians are more likely than any citizen in the, in the nation to watch television commercials for tri- that are paid for by trial attorneys, there's a problem. Um, so... And the question is, what is what's causing that? And the reason is, is that we've got a a system of laws that make it very easy to find fault in people. And when it comes to um, when it comes to the items that people sell, it's very easy to sue a, a, a someone that produces a, a product for mislabeling or misadvertising that product. So, for example. Um, these are these have become almost famous, where, pe- where there's a, there's a guy named I think it's Bryant, who's suing Reese's Pieces, because hit the and and the 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 chocolate malts, because he bought boxes of them and he, and thought that there was too much air in the box, too much pack air you know packing air. Uh, regardless of the fact that the boxes were labeled correctly with the amount of ounces that were in the in the of candy that you're purchasing, or that it's just at the end of the day, it's such a silly thing that anyone would think I'm going to sue because this box looks larger than than it should be to contain the contents. 
that, that, that kind of thing is what a reasonable person would say is not appropriate to clog, a car, clog up our court system. But nevertheless, that uh, it's going to make a trial attorney very wealthy, and it's going to cause the products that you and I like to purchase uh, more expensive, especially now that I know that you like chocolate and candy. But it'll also make the uh, uh, our, si- our court system clogged up when we really have got, um, we need to be utilizing that for the services that Missouri citizens truly need services for. So when Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard, I think, tried to produce or, or, or put forward a fairly similar bill a couple years ago, he was just inundated with, I would say, almost unprecedented criticism. I mean, there was even a point where, like, people were calling for federal investigations because they were linking like the legislation to stuff that Tamco wanted to do, which I just want to point out that Senator Richard has strongly denied. And he also pointed out that he sponsored the bill before he ever got any donations from David Humphreys. But I'm, I'm sure you've heard that type of criticism. And I'm sure you're going to probably get that type of attack lobbed your way if this gains any traction. Just before that comes, I want you to preemptively respond to uh, the criticism that this may just be being done at the behest of David Humphreys and, and, and company. Yeah, no, I don't even, I file bills based on my political philosophy. And sometimes that lines up uh, with with the philosophy of people that are in the, in the donor community, and sometimes it does not. But I've never made it a practice, nor do I think that it's wise to try to set your mind uh, towards what someone is willing to to donate. That's just not how things work or how you should operate. It, as I said before, my modus operandi is to do things that I uh, that fit within um, my philosophy, things that I know to be right and to be true, and because and and to be aggressive about it. So that at the end of the day, that I'm going to be able to look back and and be proud of the work that I did, not be ashamed of anything, and uh, be able to put my pet my head on my pillow at night and be able to sleep very soundly. It may make people mad, and a lot of these issues certainly stir up very powerful groups, and that's why you see, um, you know, Missouri has got some very entrenched powerful groups like the like the labor unions and the Missouri Trial Attorneys Association, and, and the list could go along. This, I think the Superintendents Association is very powerful, you, and, and you, you've got these very entrenched, powerful groups that stop any change from happening in Missouri. And when people say, why is Missouri not moving forward? Why is Missouri losing out on jobs? Why is Missouri no longer the state that people look to, like they did 100 years ago, for innovation and, and wonder uh, like the the state that that, that uh, at one point hosted the World's Fair, what happened to Missouri? When people ask that question, to me, it's what's holding us back is these very powerful entrenched lobby groups. And yeah, when you take them on, they're going to try to um, they're going to try to throw your name in the mud and to try to do anything they can to to uh, to ruin your reputation. So I want to talk about something that you haven't filed yet, but I know from talking with you offline, you're very interested in. There have been a series of articles written by. Uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch columnist Tony Messenger on some people's experience in more rural court systems. And they've really been, and, and from reading some of these, just horror stories of people that have basically 
allegedly committed fairly minor crimes but are facing just a lot of financial and legal issues. I know from talking with you that this has really piqued your interest, even though I don't think you agree with Tony Messenger on a lot of things. I want you to kind of elaborate on your general reaction to that and what you think the legislative response should be. To, to me, and the, reading these stories, it breaks my heart, and I hear them locally as well, and it's it, it's the same view that I have. The reason why I file right to work or any of the, the issues is that you is that when you see people that are, at the end of the day, an individual that is where the system is not helping that individual person, where it's not looking out for that, that one individual and their rights, then I think that we have failed that person. And that's to me, that's what a constitutional republic is about, is making sure that while, um, while that we, you know, the, we want to see a society where people, um, that they're able to govern themselves, that's the goal, is so that people are able to seek virtue and able to govern themselves and giving them the liberty to do that is part of that. It's a it's a necessary part. But when we, when you see that you have people that have made a mistake and they're not able to get out of it, and we instead of trying to help them make restitution and get out out of the system and improve their lives and move on and start governing their lives and start seeking a virtuous life, but instead we we just keep finding fault to, and, and keep bringing them back into back into probation then something's wrong and so to me there's a there's an issue there where you're allowing the court system to make profit off of the um, off of individuals who are failing and that's not good I think that we need to have a court system that is truly find uh, seeking justice and trying to help people make restitution for the things that they've done but also helping them uh, not be certainly not be encouraged to keep people in the in that cycle. So I am, I'm. I've in fact I spoke with Tony today about trying to just uh, dig a little bit more, get a little bit more inside information about the people that he's spoken with. Uh, and and one of the things that I think may be an issue certainly is that that the probation companies can make profit every time they drug test the people that that they're, they're under their direction. And, you know, you shouldn't be, have some profit motive to try to continue to, to get people to take drug, drug tests more frequently, right? So that should not be, um, should be, you know, in healthcare, we've got stark laws to say, doctors can't make money and make a profit because they send you f uh, for a test. The same should, same philosophy should be applied in, in this as well. So let's talk about a couple of issues that are not necessarily things that you've sponsored but could become major points of contention during the session. Um, one of the things that Governor Parson has mentioned as a priority is he wants the legislature to revamp the low-income housing tax credit program. For our listeners who don't know already, the state version of that program is still not activated because the MHDC has not voted to reactivate it. Um, because Governor Parson wants some changes to that program um, before uh, his appointees do that, which is kind of surprising in many respects because Governor Parson has been a fairly vocal advocate of the low-income housing tax credit program, whereas the former governor, uh, Eric Greitens, was a major critic. I know this is an issue that you dealt with all the time in the House, 
and I'm sure that you're going to have an opinion about it when it comes down the line in the Senate. Have anybody has anybody in your caucus talked about that being a major issue during the session, or is it going to kind of end up like it always does? Is just a lot of talk about changing it, but ultimately not a lot of action. I think I think it'll likely be the latter, um, but I look. I think that there is a place for uh, government's role in that in that space. Um, is it? Uh, I don't think that on one spectrum it should be like the Pruitt I go. I think that we've seen that that state-run um, efforts, um, totally government-run efforts, are truly failures. But on the other end, I, I think just like we're seeing with this uh, um, with this probation situation, that you can you can create an environment where government is picking the company, and and without enough restraints, that company is going to make uh, egregious profits. And I'm a, to me, it makes the, it really is an embarrassment for the private sector um, and for for free market capitalism. I want to see a solution that um, is is low cost to the taxpayers but effective. And clearly, the I think the reason why Governor Parson is rightly hitting the pause button is that when you look at all of the data and the reports that came out, is that we are not getting the bang for the buck when that with that program. And so um, I'm, I'm willing to take a look at it and see what, solu- what solutions that people have. Um, but I, but I, I'm like you. I think having had some history in the building, I think it's likely that we won't see anything. And let's talk about clean Missouri for a bit. Um, so this is a constitutional amendment, and I just want to make clear that there's a big difference between passing your right-to-work bill, which if it passed through the legislature, it could be signed by the governor and implemented immediately. Anything in clean Missouri, which, as I mentioned before, makes pretty substantial change to state legislative redistricting, if the legislature passes a change, it would have to go back to the voters ostensibly in 2020. I I haven't found a lot of Republicans who are currently in the legislature who are terribly happy with the, the redistricting part of clean Missouri. I think that they feel that it's it's in the way it's set up is going to reduce the amount of Republicans in the General Assembly eventually because there's a formula um, that I'm not going to go into. And I've gone in and other shows that that basically mandates districts to be drawn a certain way. What What's kind of your feeling on that? And what is your general um, uh, what has been your general talk of of your colleagues about bringing something up in the next year or two um, that the voters may vote on? Uh, in terms of changing the clean Missouri redistricting system. So there's some things about it I thought were, uh, you know, that the voters, I think that when, when the voters saw that, um, I think they saw immediately things like lobbyist meal bans, which I've never personally taken a lobbyist meal or gift. I, uh, there's a handful of lawmakers that do that. It's not easy to do that. It's, it's actually a lot of uh, paperwork uh, to live that kind of lifestyle, but um, and then you had um, other things I think that were popular. But what people need to know is that it was a lot of. Um, it's almost like when your dog has medicine and you put you put the medicine inside of uh, something that's a treat. What people don't know is that Clean Missouri really was that redistricting bill, and then they put all of the other tangential things that they knew voters would grab onto around it in order to get it passed 
but I, I, I'm surprised. I, I was, I talked to people at the water cooler at work yesterday who were shocked to find out that that bill, um, had the redistricting portion in it. They didn't, they were unaware of that whenever they voted for it. Um, I, I, if, if the legislature were to try to fix it, I think it would be a, a big heavy lift, uh, to try to come up with something that, uh, that the voters, uh, would, would buy because it would be lawmakers regulating lawmakers, right? So people are obviously going to be skeptical. And I think that if we were to do this, we would have to be very honest with ourselves and start digging into some things that truly need to be fixed and, um, and true, like for and, and truly um, reform some things. Yeah, and I and just want to I just want to mention that because one of the ideas that has been floated is, well, let's let's pair a major change to the Clean Missouri redistricting system with something that sounds good to voters. Like you know, the don't the lawmakers don't pass a budget, they don't get paid. I'm just throwing that out there, kind of hypothetically, which in in some ways would be kind of a similar strategy to what Clean Missouri did. Um, and and I, I do see what you're trying to say, that if lawmakers put something else on the ballot that makes substantial changes to clean Missouri or gets rid of aspects of clean Missouri, I could see the proponents of clean Missouri saying, look, the lawmakers are trying to, you know, they're striking back it's, at, it's, at a voter approval. Fox, well, yeah, it's, it's Fox guarding the hen house. Yeah. So they're yeah. going to do that regardless. Uh, so I think that it'll probably, if it were to happen, I, um, at this point, I'm just kind of conjecturing with you. I th- I think that it would be a combination. I think the law, I think we would, there, you would likely have some very, uh, uh, very uh, popular options like what you said. And then you would probably, I think that you would need to really do some substantive, substantive uh, reform. Uh, because I think that at the end of the day, there's, there are going to be intellectual minds uh who are skeptical that that you need to uh, win over, and and I think that it truly, if you're I, to me, I I hold the Constitution is something sacred, and I don't think I don't like how much we are playing with our Constitution, and I I think that uh, to me this concept of just putting these issues in here to win over the voters and add some other language in the Constitution, it just to me, it really grades me the wrong way um, in general. Just talking about this is something I, I'm not really a big fan of, but I do think that um, I, I do hope this issue gets resolved because I do think that that redistricting language is a mess. It's an absolute mess. Well, that was going to be my other question. Like, how do you think it would affect your district, given that I know that there are parts of Springfield which are more Democratic than others, but you're surrounded by areas that voted for, like, Josh Hawley and Donald Trump by, like, 70 and 80 percent. I certainly understand the concern in among Republicans in the St. Louis and Kansas City suburbs. I also kind of understand the concern of African-American lawmakers who are worried their districts are going to become less African-American. But if, for someone like you, what exactly do you have to worry about under this if, if, if the surrounding terrain is all Republican, basically? I think that in my area, I don't think that there's much they can do to, to make it more uh, difficult. I think that the for example, the Senate makeup, I don't think you could have a worse drawn map for Republicans in southwest Missouri than the current Senate map. I think that they, they actually conceded that in order to get what they wanted in the other parts of the state. 
but uh, I I mean I've heard and I don't know how much of it I believe until it actually is done right we haven't gone through this process to see what could really be done but I had heard that you could even draw in places from other parts of the state now whether that can actually be done I don't know but um, I, I agree with you that I, I doubt that you could change the drawing in southwest Missouri enough to to get more Democrat elected officials than you currently have yeah my final question for you what is the Stop Socialism Act? I think <laughs> inquiring minds want to know how Eric Burleson is going to stop socialism in the socialist state that is Missouri. You know, just yeah, look so at the election I, results. It's, it's <laughs> totally socialist at this point. Right. So I think, first of all, what people need to remember is socialism is government controlling the means and use of production. And so we often forget what that is. But it, but it does rear its head in, poli- in, in government and oftentimes when the counties and municipalities compete with other businesses. And so what this bill does uh, is it says that if you're a business owner and the state, county, or munis- local municipality starts a business, basically a state-run or, or paid-for business to compete against you, then you, you can sue that government entity under the under the Constitution under the takings clause of the Constitution and this has happened um, just to give you an example in my own area in Springfield we had we have a, a lot of different fitness center options you know you've got planet fitness and the Y and I mean the list goes on but for some reason the county and the city decided they wanted to create their own fitness center network and they and and the YMCA in those areas they they revolted they 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 uh, they re- re- uh, wrote into the paper. They uh, went to the meetings to try to stop it. And I think with good with good um, intentions, you know, if something's in the yellow pages, if people are advertising those services, then government doesn't need to take taxpayer money to compete against those businesses. And and if if those businesses end up being harmed, then they, to, in my opinion, they have a they they have a good reason to go to that very taxing entity and ask for reimbursement for what what this what they took. You know if the if the government stepped in and said we're going to take your business, then they could say, "Well, you can't just take it. You have to reimburse us under the takings clause." Right? But there's nothing currently to stop government from stepping in next and creating a business next door and using the almost empty pockets of the government to to lower their prices to run you out of business. And this happens in various aspects around the state, it happened recently in the, in, I think, on the Gasconade River, where the state parks department purchased a canoe outfitter and is competing with the uh, the neighboring canoe outfitter. And you know, if I were that guy, I would be livid that I'm having to pay taxes to the state, who is my competition and is running down the the, the costs uh, of uh, of those services that I have to compete against. I think it happens in other parts of the state when the state steps in and wants to create an internet service uh, to compete with other internet service providers. So in my opinion, if, if you have a business in place and you're making revenue and you can demonstrate that the government stepped in and caused you to lose revenue and caused you to lose business, then I think you have every right to be reimbursed for what the government took from you. That's the, that's the Stop Socialism Act. Thank you so much for talking with me, as always. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow uh, me at Jay Rosenbaum. 
How would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts uh, of the world, world Wide Web? At Eric Burleson on Twitter. And then I've got a Facebook page as well. And thank you very much to KSMU for facilitating this conversation. Make sure to read all of their stories at ksmu.org. Until next time, so long. Sponsored by Lou Fuse Alfa Romeo of Metro East. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.